This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. Register now at healthed.com.au. Prescribing oxygen therapy sounds easy enough, but it really isn't. Some patients may benefit from lung reduction surgery or the use of endobronchial valves. But which ones? Sleep disorders, including obstructive sleep apnea, are common in people with COPD. How will you know if BiPAP or CPAP is the better device? And how safe is it for patients with COPD to travel by air? Professor Gregory King unpacks these and why we should refer patients to respiratory physicians to have these issues sorted. There's more than meets the eye. Professor King, tell us about yourself. Hi, David. Thanks very much. I'm a respiratory physician. I'm based at Royal North Shore Hospital, where I'm a a staff specialist. I'm involved with the lung function laboratory. So I run our pulmonary function service. I'm an academic at Sydney University, which is where my academic title comes from. My area of research interest is airways disease, asthma, COPD, and bronchiolitis. And the way I study it is uh, with detailed lung function, physiology, and imaging. So I'm really interested in mechanisms of disease and, and how it translates to some form of usefulness in the clinic. Well, that's a very important perspective that we should tap into one day. But today's focus really is about the other management tools that GPs may have to access for our patients with more severe COPD. So let's just start with oxygen therapy. Firstly, what is it? What are the current indications and contraindications for home oxygen? Home oxygen therapy or long-term domiciliary oxygen therapy is oxygen supplementation for COPD patients who are hypoxemic. So to qualify for oxygen therapy, they need to have demonstrated persistent hypoxemia when they're clinically stable. So being having an acute exacerbation is different. So most of those patients, if they weren't oxygen dependent before the exacerbation, will return to probably be the same as a non-oxygen dependent. So the patients who we're thinking about putting on oxygen therapy in the long term at home are the ones who have persistent hypoxemia at home in a clinically stable state. And this requires an arterial blood gas. And it's obviously taken when they're clinically stable and it's taken on room air. 
and their PaO2, their partial pressure of oxygen in the blood, has to be less than 55 millimeters of mercury. So it's a pretty hard and fast rule. If we think they have pulmonary hypertension from their COPD, then it's a slightly different criteria of 60 millimeters of mercury. And we would titrate the oxygen therapy when they go home. Ideally, it would be done in our lung function laboratory or a similar, or in the clinic or something like that, if there's facility to do that. And we would titrate the oxygen to have their saturations to be around 88 to 92%, somewhere thereabouts. Like it's not a hard and fast rule. I think like, I think many of us stick too closely to these numbers as a hard and fast rule, but I view it as something, it's a, they're a guide for COPD and that 88 to 92% is an extremely important number to remember. And it's lower than for non-respiratory disease because if we give too much oxygen, it's actually dangerous. And particularly in the acute exacerbation, if we oxygenate people over 92% during exacerbations, it's actually associated with worse outcome, more likely to go to ICU, more likely to need um, ventilation of some sort. So that 88 to 92% is a really important number. So hence, we would tend to use that number when we give home oxygen. And of course, having said that there are disadvantages or potential dangers to home oxygen, I think that has to be kept in mind when you're prescribing oxygen to a person at home or considering it. And that, that underlies why we need an arterial blood gas, because not only do we want to measure the arterial oxygen, but we want to measure the arterial CO2. And of course, if they're hypercapnic, that really indicates another risk, that you identify a person that is, is at even greater risk of hypercap worsening hypercapnia if you give them too much oxygen. So that, that's the second reason why arterial blood gases are so important if you're going to consider home oxygen. And, and finally, which is I think probably everyone knows, that we wouldn't give home oxygen to a person who's continuing to smoke. Can you go into a little bit of detail, Greg, about why patients end up in ICU and become uh, require ventilation more often if you give them oxygen that brings their PO to over 92%? Yeah, giving oxygen, like, like the, I guess the natural um, belief is that oxygen is sort of an element and we breathe it and it's all natural and um, if we don't get enough, it's bad and if we get too much, it's okay, it's fine, more oxygen, the better. Giving CO2 when they come to hospital does, does a few things. Firstly, it brings the oxygen up, but in doing that, it can actually increase the CO2 because it displaces the carbon dioxide off the hemoglobin molecule. So almost as soon as we give oxygen, it, you can, we can immediately increase the carbon dioxide. And then they become, that induces acute acidosis. The pH will drop. And as the pH falls, that will impair organ function, particularly cardiac function and muscle function and brain function. So you can get acute effects of hypercapnia very quickly with oxygen therapy. And once it's on for a while, then the, you can get delayed effects. You can see the CO2 climb and the pH fall further. And so the, this is probably the main mechanism, main mechanisms, should I say. Um, the third mechanism is worsening um, ventilation perfusion mismatching. Those are the three physiological mechanisms by which we think oxygen can be potentially harmful. And 
that will, if, if they become more acidotic, they have to breathe harder, their muscles don't work as well, the heart doesn't work as well. That's all a recipe for worsening or deteriorating respiratory function, increased respiratory effort, they might get more tired. And then, they, then we would decide they need to be um, ventilated, either invasively or non-invasively. So fortunately, non-invasive ventilation really works in hypercapnic failure in COPD, acute hypercapnic respiratory failure. Acute, I'm saying acute, not chronic. I'm saying um, hypercapnia that worsens or develops during an acute exacerbation of their COPD. So fortunately, we know that nasal ventilation works quite well. And um, that's our first preference is to nasally ventilate them. But of course, if you're considering that, you have to you have to think one step ahead because if that doesn't work, the next step is to intubate them and they would be invasively ventilated thereafter. So dealing with a hypercapnic, acutely hypercapnic patient with COPD, it, it, it's pretty involved for those reasons. Hopefully I've, I've given the picture. Yes, I'm already beginning to feel that it's not easily a decision to be taken by a, a GP, no matter how the patient might feel about it. You certainly need a lot of good specialist advice on this one. Yeah, yeah. Like, like one of our bugbears really is that emergency department is, gets very flippant about, very casual about using non-invasive ventilation. It's almost now used for almost anything that causes respiratory distress. And I think that's a that's a terrible misuse of NIV. One of the things I've noticed over the decades that I've practiced is how rare it is that I am seeing the true, you know, the old pink puffers and blue bloaters. Mm -hmm. uh, is that a useful thing to keep in mind these days or is it passe? Oh, no, I, I think it's more relevant now than ever before, honestly. The pink puffer and the blue bloater. As you described, the blue bloater is the one that is um, sometimes blue. They're very hypoxic. It doesn't worry them. And they're hypercapnic. And somehow their respiratory center has adjusted or adapted to accept hypoxemia and, and hypercapnia. And, and there's a lot of biochemical change that allows them to do that. Mm -hmm. why, they, why they do that in the first place, it, nobody knows why. And yet there are other patients, the pink puffer, as you described, Mm -hmm. Skinnier, not hypoxemic, usually normal oxygen tensions, normal CO2 tensions or low, if anything, mm -hmm. very dyspneic. And they come into your office and they say, oh, Dr. Lim, I'm short of breath again. And every time you see them, can you do anything about this breathlessness? Yeah. Such a contrast and everything in between. But I, think, but I think that a simple concept like that today is more, more relevant than ever before because we're thinking in COPD, what type of COPD do you have? How well might you respond to different therapies? Because you've raised different therapies for people. How well do you respond to steroid therapy, for instance? Or should I not be giving you steroid therapy? And I, I think that really is the future of airways disease management in really doing a much thorough assessment, if you like. We can call it phenotyping. We can call it treatable traits, which is the current trend. And in clinical research for these patients, that's what it's called. But being a clinician, I think of it as in good old fashioned basic clinical medicine, you're just doing a really thorough clinical assessment of that person. What is the nature of their breathlessness? What is their BMI, are they obese? What is their arterial CO2? What is their sleep status? Is their, is their sleep disorders impacting on their daytime blood gases? 
all this sort of thing. I just love this holistic picture of uh, fully assessing a patient. However, the one thing you did bring up is one, it's difficult to assess is the sleep disorders and actually asking the question, how do I know if they've got significant sleep disorder and how do I suspect it's impacting their daily lives apart from, um, you know, hypersomnolence in the daytime? Yeah, like some COPD, many COPD patients that, that, that we see and you see, of course, they're pretty complicated patients if you if you bother just to dig a little deeper. <laughs> but I think it just boils down to just good old basic, the basic stuff, the first principles. Sleep disordered breathing is actually very common in airways disease. It, it's remarkably common in COPD. And if you ask the question, how do you sleep? They often come out with very poorly, doctor. Mm-hmm. And and the surveys and community studies on the prevalence of abnormal sleep and poor sleep and nighttime symptoms, it's actually relatively high. I guess it depends on the on the population you survey, of course. If you look at the very severe end, it's, it's pretty prevalent. Mm-hmm. And um, there are things that you might be able to do to help that. And looking at the sleep disordered breathing might be something that you might think about and referring to a patient, referring to to physicians who, who have got an interest in airways disease and sleep sleep disordered breathing. And I guess I guess the interest varies between myself and, and colleagues about how, how much we're interested in this whole idea about sleep disordered breathing and trying to manage sleep disorders in COPD patients. It's quite a it's quite a complex area as well, particularly when you uncover a, a hypercapnic patient that, that really that really changes the stakes about what you're trying to do. But, but I think if you, if you refer a patient with a specific question, do you think that there is sleep disorder breathing that is affecting this person's daytime symptoms and COPD? I mean, it's a pretty specific question, and I think it's a very, very much a fair enough question to pose to a, a specialist to assess. Just along this line, Greg, is it... Often, you know, the BiPAP-CPAP controversy for patients with severe COPD, where do we stand at the moment? For, for stable COPD, then it's, it would, for people who are not hypercapnic, mm-hmm. it would be CPAP. Like it's much simpler to titrate, to administer, to prescribe. I would argue that complicated patients who've got COPD and sleep disordered breathing should probably have an in-lab um, titration. Mm-hmm. I guess it depends on the COPD patient if they've got very mild COPD and you think that the sleep disorder breathing is the dominant, uh, let's say sleep apnea is the dominant abnormality, then maybe auto titrating CPAP will be enough. But I guess the important thing is that if they've got COPD and sleep apnea, they should probably be seen by a specialist to supervise all this rather than rather than, you know, as, as, as we often see these days, fairly, fairly loosely prescribed CPAP and, and you're on your way. I think they need, they need closer observation. The, the complex side of it is the ones who are hypercapnic and they're the ones that would, be, would have NIV. And that, that's, that's, that's a much more, I guess, I don't know whether it's controversial, but it's, it's a more complex issue whether you do this or not because the studies looking at looking at NIV for patients who are chronically hypercapnic and have COPD, the results of those studies are a little bit, they're not, they're not very strongly supportive or not very conclusive. My, my take on it is that it works in some, 
but it takes a hell of a lot of work. So if, if in the studies where they were willing to bring them into hospital, acclimatize them to NIV, lots of follow-up outside hospital, they're more likely to work in the group as a whole. Whereas if you do it in a much looser way, they're hypercapnic, you titrate them, you put them on NIV, you send them off, those studies have been negative in terms of improved outcome, improved quality, less breathlessness, et cetera, et cetera. That's why I say it's, it's, it's one of those things that has to be weighed up carefully with an individual, but it comes back to what you're saying before. It boils down to a very detailed, holistic type of assessment of everything and then consider whether, whether you want to embark on the whole NIV process, which I think if you're going to do it, You've got to do it properly and you've got to know all the, the effort involved in this. Uh, Professor King, for some of our listeners, could you just uh, state what NIV is? Right, non-invasive ventilation or bi-level ventilation. So there are two, there are two levels. There is a PEEP level, a positive expiratory and expiratory pressure. That's the lower level. So when they breathe out, then it provides them some sort of expiratory pressure to support their airways, maintain it open. And that's the part that treats the sleep apnea. It's the PEEP part, P-E-E-P, positive end expiratory pressure. And of course, CPAP is, is that. It, that pressure never changes. It's a constant pressure. Where NIV, non-invasive ventilation or bilevel ventilation is different, is that when the, when the subject, when the patient inspires, the machine detects this and it ramps up the pressure and it actually provides inspiratory support. And that is useful because it augments the tidal volume and you can program a backup rate. So if the patient is hypoventilating, which typically occurs in REM sleep, it'll detect that the patient's breathing too slow and actually throw in, throw in a, an extra breath when the time, time limit is reached. Mm-hmm. So it, it does those, the, the bilevel part does those two things, augments, augments the tidal volume, therefore increasing overall ventilation thereby reducing the CO2 level, and it provides a backup for minimum um, respiratory rate. Now, some patients, of course, might need even more invasive treatment. I'm going to ask you to talk to us now about some of the more aggressive treatments, such as lung reduction surgery and endobronchial devices, such as coils. When do we even think about these things? Does it really help? And who does it and what are the problems? I, th- I think like almost everything in CRPD and in fact, everything in airways disease, there is a subgroup that really probably benefits from it. So firstly, in terms of um, surgery, lung volume reduction surgery, the principle behind the surgery is that you can identify a spot in the lung, which is greatly affected by emphysema. And this is, would, would obviously be done using a CT scan. Mm-hmm. And if on the CT, there is a clearly localized area, which is much worse than everything else, mm-hmm. they would be in principle, the candidates that would, that they would be potential candidates for resection. Essentially those very emphysematous areas act as space occupying lesions. Yep. So one, one of my old mentors used to describe them as ping pong balls. Mm-hmm. So they're holes in the lung and they don't deflate. They stay inflated even when you breathe out. And therefore, they, they just take up space. They don't breathe. They're just completely redundant. Therefore, you can remove them. And 
it might improve the function. So it's clearly very dependent on the selection of patients who have that type of emphysema. The other criteria is having a DLCO that is above 30% of predicted. So the definitive study was actually done about 15 years ago now in the US. And the, the surgeon actually said, these type of patients are going to do badly. If they've got low DLCOs and they've got emphysema everywhere, there's nothing I can identify to take out. Those patients are going to do badly. And he was right. He was actually right. Those are the patients you want to leave alone. And I think in practice, very rarely now are people sent for lung volume reduction surgeries. So the experience in Australia is actually fairly low. And, and there are a few surgeons who have some experience in it. In terms of valves, it's a similar idea. When you have emphysema, as you breathe out, the lung is emphysematous. Therefore, the elastic support on the airways is lost. And therefore, the airways then collapse when people breathe out. And therefore, the air can't escape. And so... We're obviously looking for people who do this, who have a lot of gas trapping. When they breathe out, airways collapse and the, and the lungs don't deflate. The other part of the um, picture is that emphysema patients tend to have highly developed collateral ventilation. So what this means is that the emphysematous holes go everywhere, including to different lobes of the lung. So a person could breathe into their right middle lobe and then the ventilation could go into the right lower lobe. So it's a very circuitous type of ventilation. And if that occurs, it means that endobronchial valves tend not to work so well because ventilation is going in these bizarre routes. And it's done by specialist bronchoscopists, interventional bronchoscopists, and they should be referred to centres that really have experience in doing this mm -hmm. because it's all in the selection. How do you find out these bizarre routes, Greg? Do you have to give them a particular... Uh, radioactive gas to breathe and follow it. How do you know where it's going? That that would be the that would be the correct, sophisticated physiologic way of doing it, David. Is 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 to is to look at ventilation in this way. And actually, there have been studies exactly as you said, using tracer gases and COPD. But because it's so complex to do, we we like like which I'm which I actually am a bit ashamed to say that we don't have really amazing technology that we can rely on in respiratory medicine. Mm -hmm. We use this good old CT scan and we look for complete fissures, complete interlobular fissures. So that, that really is the main one. Okay, interesting. And, and the bronchoscopists during the, their assessment can do some, some tests as well once the bronchoscope is down. But the simple initial screening is that you're looking for complete fissures on the CT. Now, what are the outcomes of such procedures? If, if, if you allow the, the trapped gas to escape, then hopefully your lung function improves. And that really is, is one of the main outcomes. And in the, in the valve studies, that, that is obviously a very important primary outcome, that the FEV1 improves, the spirometry improves. But not only that, you would hope that their exercise tolerance improves and their breathlessness, their exercise breathlessness improves as well. Because one of the major causes of breathlessness during exercise is that they can't deflate their lungs and during exercise once you increase your respiratory rate it makes it even harder to to deflate your trapped gas and and really i'm describing what's what's called frequency dependence patients with this phenomenon of gas trapping severe emphysema airway collapse the faster they breathe the more gas they trap so when they exercise obviously you breathe faster and, and exactly the opposite happens of what you want. Well, you start trapping more gas. 
and and this is a this is a this is a particular behavior and as i said before it's a particular phenotype of what goes on in copd and i think in the future we, we're going to be able to measure this these phenomena much better mm. and so we're going to say you know you know joe on one hand exercises quite well he doesn't gas trap much etc mm. etc et whereas you know bill on the other hand he very much is a gas trapper and he's very very frequency dependent and when he raises his respiratory rate too much, yeah, you can see this terrible gas trapping that's happening. You know, when, when we say quite intuitively, hey, you know, look, you know, they're in your surgery, you're nebulizing them, calm down, slow everything down, slowly and deep, deeply, that is exactly what, what we're trying to do. Interesting. Slow and deep, slow and deep, because that is a much more effective way of breathing, which minimizes gas trapping and minimizes dynamic hyperinflation. Does any of these oxygen, uh, home oxygen treatment, lung reduction surgery, valves, um, do any of these improve A, mortality, uh, and B, reduce exacerbations? Um, mortality, no. Nothing we do really except smoking, getting them to quit smoking, reduces, reduces mortality. With the exception that possibly giving steroids to a to the severe subgroup, the, the frequent exacerbators, there, there is some hint that there is a mortality signal. So in several large pharma studies in the GSK um, impact study and in other studies, there's been a there's been clearly a mortality signal with inhaled corticosteroids. In terms of lung volume reduction surgery and in terms of endobronchial valves, no. And oxygen, does it make any difference to mortality? Yeah, another really interesting question. So it's amazing that all our oxygen prescription for COPD with domiciliary oxygen is based on two simple studies done in the UK 40 years ago. And they were in patients who were very severe. They were hypercapnic and had pulmonary hypertension. And actually, the mortality was better than that group that received oxygen. Whereas we, we're prescribing domiciliary oxygen now really to a wider group of patients. And it's really uncertain whether we do have a mortality benefit in that in the wider group. And, and because they were done so long ago and the treatments are so different now, we have much better cardiology, cardiac treatments that probably the cardiac treatments are what may, has made the difference. Yeah, our borders have opened again, and uh, we've had a lot of patients not seeing the doctors for a while. And so we may well have some patients with COPD who might well guest trap. What does this mean for our patients who go traveling by air? Does it ever cause pneumothoraxis or any issues? Yeah, like a really good practical point. By and large, air travel for COPD patients is, is actually very safe. So you probably know from your own practice that most of your patients tell you in hindsight, oh, yeah, I went, I went to uh, Europe uh, and, and it was great and I was fine. <laughs> so they, they bypass you. And I think that has to be kept in mind. But like so many of my patients have told me that and never asked whether they would, could travel. They just went and did it. <laughs> but there is a formal procedure to go through. So patients, when they travel domestically, Airlines are pressured to about 7,000 or 9,000, 7,000 feet, mm -hmm. 7,000 feet or thereabouts. So the, the inspired oxygen drops from about 21% to about 15%. Domestic air travel, the planes are pressurized less than on international travel. 
So in international travel, it's actually the higher there's more oxygen content in the cabin. And, and I, I take both a combined clinical assessment and with the arterial blood gases. Mm. So, so if, if they're severe, they've got bad lung function impairment, they, the exercise capacity is like outside to the front gate and back, and they've got pulmonary hypertension, yeah. i.e. they've got signs of right ventricular failure, they've got coexistent disease, particularly ischemic heart disease, et cetera, et cetera. That, that clearly is a high-risk group. So severe lung function impairment, reduced exercise capacity, pulmonary hypertension, resting saturations might be low, and coexistent cardiac disease. This is such an important question because there is a very formal procedure to go through to be safe. It's almost like, as a GP, I should be informing my patients with uh, COPD that if they intend to travel, please tell me, give me enough time to actually sort out that it is, in fact, safe to travel. Mm -hmm. Is that Mm -hmm. right? That, that that's right that's right and you you can request a high a high ox, a high altitude simulation test when we get that in the lab they come and take a a resting finger oximetry yeah and then we put on 15 percent oxygen and then we repeat the oximetry and then we get them to step up and down or they might just stand still and just just do high knee stepping up and down on the spot and then we measure how much they desaturate and we send back a report saying this was their resting breathlessness and this is their breathlessness at altitude during stepping. We, we don't actually provide a clear-cut recommendation of oxygen or not. And it's, it's very difficult to do so because there are pretty much no studies that tell us what the risk is at any given level of oxygen desaturation. So, for example, most patients when their um, oxygen saturations are in the 90s, whether they desaturate a lot can be surprising. So some people don't desaturate at all and others desaturate it down to the late low 80s. Okay. And so it's a very complex equation. How all the clinical factors that I said before is one part of the picture. How much they desaturate during the stepping or during simulated altitude is another part. And then how much dyspnea they have during that stepping. So, so we record a Borg scale out of 10. 10 would be like extreme severe breathlessness, zero is none. And, and, and so they just nominate a number and it gives you an indication of how breathless they are. Like a seven is quite severe. A seven is a severe breathlessness. So it's up to you as a clinician to put that complex equation together. But I think, I think really, as, as with anything in airways disease, you should be guided by your clinical factors a COPD patient who has got good exercise tolerance, no, no or minimal cardiac disease, and has not had exacerbations, that I, I wouldn't really worry much about them. Even if they're sitting there at 85% at altitude, that's fine. If they're flying to Perth, I, I would be happy with that. Okay. 85%, good clinical picture. Whereas a person who has got cardiac disease, had a heart attack, six to nine months ago, terrible exercise tolerance, I'd be much worried, more worried about them okay. and then more likely to prescribe oxygen on the flight. I have just learned so much from you, Greg, but it seems to me that it's actually more complicated than it seems, in fact, a bit like Alice in Wonderland, you know, <laughs> yeah. what it seems. And I'm almost getting the feeling that I'm probably not referring enough uh, sometimes to my respiratory physician friends for uh, opinions and advice regarding 
treatment for some of my patients. If, if, if I give that um, sort of message that there's a lot of complexity in this, I, then that is absolutely what I think. We can take the attitude that it's, it's all one disease and we treat it just with a few puffers. We can do that. But I think to, to really appreciate the complexity and to deal with the complexity, because we, we have tools to deal with things. You know, we can deal with cardiac disease. We know how to treat heart disease. We know how to treat deconditioning. We know how to treat, um, give action plans for exacerbations, for instance. Yeah. We, we can do all those things. I know it is time consuming and I appreciate how it can be very difficult. But we also know that if we take a comprehensive approach, the outcomes are better. I think that's one thing we know for sure is that the clinical outcomes, if we take a comprehensive approach, are definitely better. Look, that was a very good summing up of um, things I was thinking about, very well articulated. Do you have any final messages for our GP listeners, Greg? Well, we, we covered a hell of a lot of those very complex issues. I mean, you, you picked really complicated issues like oxygen therapy, NIV, um, surgery, valves. I think the, the, the future of airways, airways disease management is in better dissecting the nature of disease in a given individual. And it's, COPD in particular is a multi-system disease. It affects particularly the heart, but also the mood, the peripheral muscles, they're all interacting. And, and as I said, I think it's the future of the way we're going to approach the disease because we know that it, if we do that, it's associated with better outcomes. Putting in place a, a way to deal with all this is, is our challenge. And interestingly, after, after COVID, the idea has got, at least into my health service, that the home monitoring um, based at the hospital, because we, we did virtual hospitals for, uh, for COVID, the idea is that, wow, maybe we could actually do that for chronic diseases like COPD. Right. And I, I think that absolutely is the future, that there'll be more collaboration between general practice and hospital-based services, particularly in managing complex disease at home, because, again, there's really good evidence that, that this type of management style for complex multi-system disease is effective. So I, I think that is the future of airways disease. And if, if we as I said in some talks, embrace the complexity of it rather than ignore it and sweep it under the rug. I think it's the way that pharma and, 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 and research will come, come up with better medications and drugs to help us in managing it. I think it's, we, we must do this. It just occurs to me that one of the things that might be needed if you have that remote monitoring are cheap remote sensors for arterial blood gases if we could if we could monitor co2 boy that'd be a breakthrough well great there you go bit yeah. of work there for you yeah yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> thank you so much for your time greg well, my pleasure yeah have a very good day thanks you too just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.
www.rac.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.